0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast about 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke, and I hope you're ready for a little bonus episode, an addendum to our read-along of The Blue Castle, if you will. This week, we are welcoming back Dr. Trina Frever to discuss The Blue Castle, regionalism, and place Ellen Montgomery in conversation with other writers like Zora Neale Hurston, Sarah Orne Jewett, and Willa Cather. Now, you may remember Trina from last season. She did that dual interview with fellow Montgomery scholar, Dr. Kate Scarth about Montgomery and her relationship to Prince Edward Island. And I really loved that episode. And if you haven't heard it, please go back and check it out. Now, during that episode, this was cut, but I heard a little bit about Trina's dissertation, which was called The Woman Writer and the Spoken Word. Gender, Print, Orality, and Selected Turn-of-the-Century American Women's Literature, which explores how a set of women regionalists writing from 1880 to 1920 in the U.S. used oral storytelling in their print fiction to reformulate the concept of writing and its gendered associations. And I just knew that Trina was the one to really explain regionalism to me. So That's what she's here to do today. And we're going to get there by way of the Blue Castle. Now, we'll kick off this discussion with Trina talking about her favorite quote from the Blue Castle. And we'll end up somehow magically at Zora Neale Hurston.
1: Yep, Well, I did a reread with this podcast in mind. And so I, I put post-its in on some of my favorites. I think my all-time favorite quote from this book, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, hang on, I'm going to try and take a deep breath and read in a nice voice. The greatest happiness, said Valancy suddenly and distinctly, is to sneeze when you want to. Yeah. That's my absolute favorite quote from the book. I think Montgomery gets really Undersold as a humorist. She is just so funny. In all of the books, I think she's really, really funny. And yet she gets categorized in so many ways that have nothing to do with the fact that she's funny. You know, as a regionalist, as a children's writer, as I'm trying to think, you know, a feminist. I mean, She, I don't think, would have used the term feminist. She was very conventional in some ways, but she was very progressive in others, and I think of her as a feminist writer. Um, But certainly uh, at the forefront of women's literature, you know, she's, she's so many things as an author. But to me, one of the ones that isn't mentioned often enough is she's a humorist. She is so funny. And as I was reading this, I was reminded distinctly in a few different places of James Thurber's short story, um, sitting in the catbird seat and also the secret of Walter Mitty, his two short stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm now privately convinced. um, I believe secret of Walter Mitty comes out about 10 years after this. And I am now secretly convinced that he must have read this as kind of the basis for secret of Walter Mitty, which if you haven't, If you're not familiar with it, it's a short story about a henpecked husband who has this very rich inner dream life. And when we look at the relationship that Valancy has in her home early in the book, and yet having this rich dream life, I don't wanna call it Walter Mitty-ish because Montgomery did it first. Interesting. But but I, I firmly believe that now in a way that I hadn't fully noticed before that Thurber was probably influenced by Montgomery. She published widely in journals that published short stories in America. Um, He was primarily a short story writer. I bet he knew her work. I'm just gonna bet on it. I don't think there's any evidence of that yet, but I'm gonna bet on it. One of my favorite things about Montgomery is her landscape descriptions. Mm -hmm. I am someone who is a huge fan of nature and the outdoors. I'm not necessarily outdoorsy in the conventional sense that I, I don't need to know if my sleeping bags are good to negative 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not outdoorsy in that way. But I am a big hiker. I'm a big visitor of wilds and botanical gardens and shores. And I, I just love being out in the outdoors. And clearly, Montgomery does too. We know this from all her writing and her journals. Um, And I've been blessedly to PEI and walked many of the places Montgomery walked and they are stunning. And the natural beauty of PEI thankfully was still intact the last time that I was there, even though there is current development, there is also a lot of current push to keep many of these natural places safe. And I'm so pleased about that. But so I absolutely love when Valency first gets married There's, it starts in my book, I have a fantastic edition of this that I love, but it starts in my book around page 168 and goes all the way for almost 20 pages where it's really just describing them hiking. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we went here, we saw these trees, we saw these flowers, you know, we, and I'm gonna just pick out Let me see if I can pick out a particular one that I like, but I just have that whole 20 page section highlighted. Um, They didn't spend all their days on the island. They spent more than half of them wandering at will through the enchanted Muskoka. County. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Muskoka County. Barney knew the woods as a book. Ding, 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 red flag. And he (laughs) taught their lore and craft to Valancy. He could always find trail and haunt of the shy wood people. Valency learned the different fairy likenesses of the mosses, the charm and exquisiteness of woodland blossoms. She learned to know every bird at sight and mimic its call, though never as perfectly as Barney. She made friends with every kind of tree. She learned to paddle a canoe as well as Barney himself. She liked to be out in the rain and she never caught cold. You know, just these, these ways that she describes intimacy with the outdoors mm-hmm. a love affair with with nature with trees with birds with flowers i mean with moss she describes the moss like, yes. i just love that and i love the daringness of it in a book that in some ways is so much about its plot in some ways more so than some of Montgomery's other books, that this has a plot trajectory that fits more conventional modes than some of her other books. It has a distinct climax, you know, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And yet she takes 20 pages to just talk about nature. I love that. And I love the way that she does it. I, I think her phraseology is beautiful. I think it is, Romanticized without being sappy some people find it bordering a little on the sappy I don't um, I just mm, just everything about the way her nature writing goes I find so beautiful and touching and of course how wonderfully meta in a book that features a nature writer so and 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 in what ways I, I sometimes wonder as I read how much of john foster is montgomery because of course it's Mm -hmm. easy to go well how much of valency is montgomery Mm -hmm. and and we know there are places where that's true but but remember john foster is an almost orphan too Mm -hmm. and and motherless as so many of montgomery's characters are and um and he's a nature writer and i think I wonder if she's kind of tapping her inner nature writer that wasn't always allowed to come out in a book market where she was pushed to plot. Um, and if you remember, I don't know if you've read all of Montgomery yet, but if you remember, I I duly love, um, oh, I almost called it by the TV show name Blasphemy, um, but I duly love the sequel, Anne of Avonlea. Um, almost as much as Anne of Green Gables. I really, really love the character of Mr. Harrison and he gives Anne editorial advice where he says, take out all those flowery passages. Mm-hmm. And, and he wants her to cut all her raps, rhapsodizing over the landscape. And I think we are meant to understand that Mr. Harrison is what editors are telling her. and And in some ways it's good advice and in other ways I think not. Can you tell us a little
0: bit about regionalism? Because I've heard that word used to put down women writers. And um, I've wondered, should I even be using it? You know, what is it all about? Let's let's hash it out here.
1: I'm going to jump in because I have very strong feelings on that. Yes, we should, because we need to take back the phrase. It has been turned pejorative. And that is a total load of HUI, and we need to claim it back. Regionalism is a strong, vibrant, essential genre. It is every bit as valuable as any other genre out there. There was an attempt for a while to refer to the women regionalists writing, well, not just women, but mostly women regionalists writing from 1880 to 1920, which is my wheelhouse um, in the US as regional realists, as an attempt to kind of reclaim the phrase. And frankly, because realism gets more attention, which is also a load of hooey. And and we just need, I don't know, should I curse? I I, I always Oh, you totally can, you totally can. (laughs) <laughs> a of, well, I'm just going to use the middle word. It's a lot of crap. All right, it's a lot of crap. It's a lot of BS. We need to claim it back. I, I sometimes work in Montgomery's vocabulary style when I'm talking about her, so that's why mm-hmm. I went with hooey, but, <laughs> because that's what a Montgomery character would have said, right? You know, Valancy yeah. is clean dippy, and I find people who dismiss regionalism to be full of Huey. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, but whatever term we want to use, I think we just have to claim back regionalism. It is so important. I think it's more important now than ever in some ways because it is so closely tied to environmentalism and Mm -hmm. so closely tied to the project of recognizing that we're connected to the planet Mm -hmm. and that we are rampaging the planet and we need to stop. I I believe they are very much akin, and and it's not coincidental that the rise of women regionalists in the US, 1880 to 1920, comes in the wake of industrialism. Okay, tell me about that, that's interesting. And it's connected to that. So, okay, so let me go back and give kind of a core definition. All right, so Mm -hmm. regionalism in general, in my view, is any writing that is immersed in place, Mm -hmm. any writing that is, any literature, that is immersed in a place self-consciously, I would say, not just accidentally, but that is making part of its project to immerse the reader in the locale, is regionalist writing. But I would go on to say that true regionalist writing includes the natural world as an element of that, but also very often includes some type of town or city and the occupants thereof in their minutiae, sort of the quirks of the local people, whoever those, whomever, whoever, mm-hmm. it is whoever, whoever those local people are. No, it is whomever. Okay, sorry. <laughs> whomever those local people are, the quirks of the local people and also what they do on a daily basis. What are their pastimes? What do their houses look like? What do they do for jobs? How? What is their decor? How do they dress? This minute immersion in the local, including the natural landscape, is regionalism. Now, it hasn't always been a women's thing. Um, Many people argue that kind of the first good regionalist in the United States, well, okay, first of all, romantic poets are sometimes thought of as regionalists. Mm. People like Wordsworth who um, immerse you in the natural world, Um, And tell you what the cloud formations look like and tell you what the trees look like, where they live, and use that as a vehicle to convey emotional information. So we could even see that as a type of regionalism. Um, Many people argue that the first good regionalist in the U.S. was um, Washington Irving who's best known for Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, but who had his whole sketchbooks of Jeffrey Kent, which is a um, collection of short works with a narrative frame, which I may want to talk about that a little bit in relation to Montgomery and regionalism later. But, um, But those works appeared in this collection which is exactly that project the the narrator is going around and describing quirky little local characters and their habits and mores, and and part of the goal of that i think even more so when you get to the women regionalists in 1880 is to preserve a way of life that they know may not be around that long and all, and so, so it's almost a, an historical type document in fiction. We want to give you, in advance of photography existing, a snapshot, n- not for Montgomery. She was also a photographer, and I don't think that's coincidental. But for Washington Irving, in advance of photography existing, we want to give you a kind of snapshot of this moment in place and time to preserve it. And so that at its core to me is regionalism. And I think in the United States, it has some particular nationalist implications, I guess I would say, because for writers like Margaret Fuller, I would read her, even though she was mostly an essayist and worked alongside people like Emerson and Thoreau to kind of help us craft a national identity in the United States, she also wrote Summer on the Lakes in, ooh, is it 1843? And, sh- and she talks about, it's a travel blog. She talks about her own travels. And it, part of the goal of that, I believe, was to establish an American literature, and, and critics like Broadhead would agree with me, um, that part of the goal of this is to establish an American literature um, partly through descriptions of the landscape. Partly through saying, this is what our place looks like and has that other places don't look like and have. And therefore, our culture isn't just a culture that's been imported from Europe and other places. Our culture is our own. Mm -hmm. And then when you get that developing across the century, then in around 1880. There's a big blooming of this regionalist writing, particularly among women. And I can give you a list of women who did it well. Um, Well, let me just draw out a few, Mary Wilkins Freeman, Alice Carey, Louisa May Alcott. Um, We don't always think of her as a regionalist, but I think that she is.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I'm also so glad that you just said Alice Carey because I literally had an Alice Carey book like show up yesterday.
1: Oh, my gosh. I am such a believer in that kind of kismet. I I am such a believer. Is it Clover Nook Sketches? Because she doesn't have that many. It is. And then I also
0: have the Carrie Sisters, a big volume of their poetry as well.
1: Okay. Yeah. Clover Nook Sketches was what was in my head because she doesn't have that many works that are still in print. Yeah. And... um, And I'm not even sure that she had that many to begin with, but Mm -hmm. Clover Nook sketches is the one that I'm most familiar with. And yes. So she's one that does it well. Um, Mary Wilkins Freeman. um, And then we will talk more, I hope about Willa Cather and Sarah Orne Jewett, who are two Mm -hmm. of my absolute favorites. And then as it develops on into and past the twenties, you also get, I would very much put Zora Neale Hurston as a regionalist. Mm. I mean, she was, she was an archivist too, I, she yeah. had a degree in anthropology. So she knew this business of documenting local places from a from a trained scholarly perspective. I think she went to Barnard if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I see Zora Neale Hurston in some ways as almost the culmination of all of this, though of course, culturally, she's doing something additional and special as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, But all of these women rise up (laughs) to to document these places that were in danger of being gone due to industrialization and also I would argue due to war. And I think that's with Montgomery, I I don't want to put this, um, Cather and Montgomery in particular are writers who start writing if i'm recalling correctly and i think i am they both start publishing before world war one and montgomery is still publishing oh i'm trying to remember her last book but but world war one is a pivotal event for both montgomery and cather in terms of like the devastation of war and and the way it can wreck the world Mm -hmm. and cather describes it as the world breaking into and having a kind of before the war life and an after the war life. And, and of course, Alcott in some ways does that in different ways with the Civil War, that this notion of the devastation of war, but also of, and then again with the industrialization as well, there is this push to preserve the natural world, but also a world of kindness that these women see often in other women. And that's part of why it has become devalued. Because of course, when we are taught literature it is, and I do have an essay that I hope to publish on this. You will hear me say that like 20 times. I have Mm -hmm. like 20 essays in the works that I need to finish and get out there. But one of them deals with how we have been trained to structure literary study around wars because men went to war and that was considered important.
0: Yeah, that
1: is fascinating. And And that's part of, why women's literature comes to be devalued because it talks about what women are doing when men are gone. Mm-hmm. In many cases, little women is what women are doing when men are at war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and many of, and and even though Montgomery has some books that deal with that explicitly, and I will be honest that I have not read them all. Um, mm-hmm. but she also has, An investment in this kind of matriarchal world, which is so interesting because, of course, she did not know her own mother. But she has an investment in this kind of matriarchal world that becomes devalued because it is seen as not as important as men going off and fighting. Mm -hmm. And while I'm talking about the matriarchal world, I'm going to circle back to Blue Castle, which I have talked about very little in the last 40 minutes. Sorry about that. Oh, that's fine. But, uh, but you can edit. <laughs> um, but, but in Blue Castle, another thing that I just love about it is the relationship with Sissy, the relationship mm-hmm. between Valency and Sissy. Because we, we hear very explicitly from Valency and from the narrator, right? That Valency's thwarted childhood and youth is not just an absence of, I'm gonna use the air quotes, romance in multiple senses of that word, with the Blue Castle being her only source of romance, Mm -hmm. but it's also an absence of female friendship. And Valancy says that, that she had not even a friend. And and one of the saddest, two of the saddest moments in the book for me are when she talks about the dust pile Mm -hmm. and when she talks about the button string which are both failures of female friendship. Um, moments when she could have had alliances with other women and they turned against her. And and even Olive, I think, exists throughout the book as someone that Montgomery could have been friends, or not Montgomery, sorry, Valency could have been friends with and instead they were constantly pitted against each other as enemies. I'm not gonna circle back again, circle back two or three times. We're gonna have circles in circles here. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the Van Uh, But (laughs) But uh, I had mentioned earlier some other writers that I felt connected with this book, male writers. And I was reminded repeatedly also of Bernice Bob's Her Hair when I was reading this. Now that was published before Blue Castle. So, if anything, probably Fitzgerald may have influenced Montgomery. There, have you read *Bernice Bobs Her Hair*? F. Scott I, Fitzgerald. I have not. Okay. Well, I'm a huge fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald's short stories. Okay. I like *The Great Gatsby*. I'm not a huge fan of his novels. I find some of the novels cumbersome and annoying, um, but but I am a massive fan of his short works. And *Bernice Bobs Her Hair* is the tale of two cousins, um, one who is a flapper and one who becomes a flapper. And it is a lovely and funny story in many regards, but one of the things that I have always found sad about it is that these cousins, the the, the cousin who is not a flapper comes to visit her cousin, kind of in the hope of them having a Louisa May Alcott style friendship right that they're going to stay up late swapping secrets and you know have this great female bond mm-hmm. and instead the cousin immediately targets her as a rival mm-hmm. and as backward and as you know not worth her time in some ways and so the cousin who came in with all these Victorian ideals decides to outflapper the flapper mm-hmm. and and in some ways it's a delightful story in that regard but I have always read that story with a mixture of, you know, the fun filledness that I think we're meant to see from it. That how funny is this? That she comes in and she out flappers the flapper. Mm-hmm. But also, I always read it with a degree of sadness that that I think, and I think Fitzgerald was doing this conspicuously that he was marking a change in womanhood, to from where women, female friendship, was more valued, to where women are now viewing each other as rivals. And there's like a rise in cattiness, shall we say.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and you see, and, and maybe Fitzgerald was exaggerating that point because he does seem to have a kind of fear of fast women, even though he also loves depicting them. And I right. mean fast, yeah. literally like their use of cars, their use of boats, their mm-hmm. use of vehicles. If a woman has access to speed, she's dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of also part of what I love about this is, you know, they're always zooming about in the car. I wish Valency drove, you know, because <laughs> I love that they're always scandalizing the town by zooming about in the car, because to me, that's kind of, she's embracing her fastness. You know, mm-hmm. she's embracing that um, in a really lovely way. And in a way that surprised me for Montgomery, because she is so vested in her other books in that kind of Victorian I almost hesitate to call it Victorian because I think of it more in terms of American and Canadian literature, US and Canadian literature, I should say, Americas in the broader sense, um, including Latin America. Um, But I've always mourned when I read Bernice Bob's Her Hair a little for that close female bond um, that it lacks. And I, I think Montgomery did a beautiful job and I do wonder now if she read Bernice Bob's her hair because I see so many resonance of it in this. Well, read her intertexts abound throughout her books, mm-hmm. and um, I've done some work on that and hope to do more. And um, and I just think the friendship with Sissy Gay is so poignant to me because part of Montgomery's blighted childhood isn't just that it has lacked romance; it's that it has lacked Female friendship and the bonds thereof, and her first great independence isn't marrying Barney. Her first great independence is leaving to care for Sissy, mm-hmm. and and they form a wonderful bond. And if you've read all of the Anne books, the bond that Anne has with Ruby Gillis in her um, through her illness is very similar, and I was reminded of it again and and we know and i'm guessing this came up in one of your other podcasts we know that Montgomery had a dear friend who died of spanish flu i just so deeply value that portrayal of the female bond as every bit as important as her later romance mm-hmm. And I think that is also part of why these books come to be dismissed, because men read them and go, well, why isn't the man one?
0: You have another quote there from The Blue Castle that you love. Why don't you go ahead and read that one?
1: Freedom and independence were all very well, but one should not be a little fool. And I kind of love that because while you could see it as Montgomery trying to, you know, be conservative, be traditional, rein her flapper back in. I actually think it's a marvelous balance that it's like, yes, you know, seek your joy, seek your independence, seek your life, but don't stop caring about other people. Don't stop using your head and your good common sense. Don't just hurl yourself into situations without weighing consequences and values. Mm-hmm. And and again, we could see that as her kind of thwarting the th- flapper, but I actually think she's creating a more thoughtful, kindly flapper that literature desperately needs. <laughs> you know, that kind of a merger. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna say one more thing and then leave this topic. I, I think she's crafting a merger between that more 19th century womanhood that is so dutiful and yet also values female friendship and women, quote unquote women's work, which I'm sorry to use that phrase without unpacking it more at the moment. Um, but, That's you know, which values the work and contribution and communities and friendships and sisterhood and, you know, Family bonds of women, but which is sometimes to our contemporary sensibility painfully dutiful, and to Valency would be painfully dutiful, right? She's taking the good elements of that and bringing them to bear on the new woman. And I think she's crafting a really, uh, since we're talking, I don't know, is it dismissive to compare women to plants? Because you know she's crafting a really beautiful hybrid rose. And since the rose bush is such a lovely symbol in this book, I'm going to run with it, even though I don't want to reduce women to the level of plants. Well, but Mm -hmm. is it a reduction? Because of course, we're also elevating the landscape at the same time. So maybe it's not, right? Maybe (laughs) the landscape has gotten reduced the same way that women have. And actually, there's a number of scholars who argue that, including Jane Tompkins, that the conquering of the landscape in the United States is closely tied to in literature, as well as other places. It's, 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 it's portrayed as part and parcel of the dominion over women, the dominion over animals, the dominion over plants, the dominion over any races that are deemed quote unquote inferior by the people who are doing the dominating, um, that all of that is interconnected very closely and so i'm going to say that it's not an insult to compare valency to the rose bush but also montgomery's project as regards female characters the way i see it i don't know if montgomery would have described her project this way but my interpretation of montgomery's project as regard the as regards the female characters is she's creating a hybrid rose that she's taking that gorgeous female friendship value in femaleness value in um, women's work and women's communities, and that wonderful quest to break from duty for its own sake, a kind of false and artificial duty that Mrs. Frederick represents, and the oppression of women in so many ways, sensorily, confinement in the home, you know, that, that Valancy actively embraces all of those new woman aspects, and and breaks from her home and breaks from her oppression and breaks from her confinement in a room, embraces her sexuality, we can talk about that a bit if you want, and, you know, all of these things, and yet doesn't reject those gorgeous 19th century ideals she creates, she creates a hybrid rose. But there, there was a lovely essay very early in Montgomery Studies when it was still kind of coming to bud as a field, if we're gonna run with the rosebud thing for a while, um, that talked about how they, the person had done archival research and had found out that Montgomery's books were given to soldiers in Poland during the war to invest in them a sense of home and of hope to remind them what they were fighting for
0: that's so interesting because austen was also given to soldiers during world war 1 and world war II to read i mean kipling famously writes about this right
1: and how is and and just a few minutes ago right i was saying to you that literary theory which i love i'm going to have a strongly mixed feeling about right now because literary theory while i love it on many levels has striven in some cases very consciously, very deliberately, has striven to remove women's literature from that realm of male conflict, right? And yet here are these gorgeous historical examples of how frontline men reading these books by women find new purpose in what they're doing. That, you know, we, we, need to, we, need, we need to revalue the women's literature in and of itself, but we also need to re-recognize the interconnectedness of it all that some scholars have very deliberately sought to erase. And, and I think, and, and to be honest, I debated, should I be talking about Thurber? Or should I be talking about Fitzgerald when I'm talking about Montgomery? Because I get mad that women get excluded in the conversations of those authors. But I did it anyway because I think the connectedness has always been there, and our and we're we're letting scholars erode it for us, and we can't let them do that. So the regionalist writers that come around in the United States and Canada, in particular, um, I have been looking to see if this also happens in the Americas at large. In Latina literature too but unfortunately I do not read in Spanish so it is hard for me many of those works have not been translated so it has been hard for me to find out but I'm curious if it is happening in the Americas at large but we know it's happening in the U.S. and Canada that in the later 19th century I did 1880 as the start point for my dissertation but as you know that kind of chronology is a little bit ridiculous and things are always ebbing and flowing but But in the later 19th century, many of these women authors had a sense not only that the landscape was getting kind of rampaged by industrialism, which is accurate, you know, it wasn't just their perception, it was true. Um, But also that, and, and also by mass transit, you know, people now becoming tourists, which is tourists figure in Uh, Jewett's work in some very clever and interesting ways, but um, people becoming tourists and so mass transit and tourism as an industry and people, you know, tromping down the trails where before there were two people, now there's 200. And, um, And there's a very real sense among all of these women, I would argue, that also a way of life is dying that these kind of quaint homespun ways, ways of talking, ways of being at home, ways of relating to other people, ways that communities are structured, the type of work that people are doing, because now they're going to factories, they're going to different types of offices than they used to go to. Um, And in some ways it's a wonderful gain, of course, because women are getting entree into work that they couldn't do before, but, but they're also cataloging some losses as well. And and now I'm feeling much more optimistic as I talk, as I run on this thought of the hybrid rose that that in some ways these women regionalists get cast as overly sentimental because they're nostalgizing this past, but now I'm starting to want now I'm, now I'm putting my finger on my chin and going you know. Jewett may also have been creating hybrid roses. Cather may also have been creating hybrid roses. I'm looking at their characters and how they think and act and what they do. And maybe they were. This is I'm having like a huge light bulb moment for myself. Maybe they were all doing that on some level. Though so Montgomery is a little later than some of these writers and had, you know, actually soft lappers and things like that. And so maybe she's doing it a little more fully and then of course I mentioned I see Zora Neale Hurston in some ways as the fruition of this tradition and she does it you know like crazy you know, mm-hmm. that she that you know she's she's in the Harlem Renaissance you know she she sees these women and yet she's also and she is you know in some ways Zora Neale Hurston is herself a flapper and and yet she also has this deep vestedness in regionalism. Sorry, I'm gonna go on to Zora neale Cather for a minute. Well, maybe I shouldn't apologize, but I'm gonna do this. Um, I'm gonna go on to Zora Neale Hurston for a minute. I may have just said Zora Cather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go on to Zora neale Hurston for a minute because I mentioned she's trained as an anthropologist at Barnard, if I recall correctly. And she goes out and does anthropological work. She gathers local stories. I haven't even talked about orality, which was the subject of my d- dissertation. And local storytelling is something all of these writers love and are hugely vested in. But Hurston went out into the country and gathered local stories, talked to local people, documented local speech patterns. And Montgomery did this, I think, in some ways unofficially because her family ran the post office. And so it was this hub of and and other scholars have pointed this out. I should mention I'm not the first person to notice this. Um, I believe Rubio and Waterston talk about it in several of their works. And um, Montgomery's family hub was the post office. And you know, if you're hanging out at the post office in a small town or a rural area, that's a huge influx of gossip, talk, storytelling, Local language, and Hurston is going out into the country as a researcher and gathering these things. But she's going out into the rural areas that she herself grew up in first, and then and then also does it more widely. But but she grew up, Hurston grew up in an area like that, and then went to New York for the Harlem Renaissance, if I'm recalling correctly, her biography. And this vestedness in local language and local ways of being. Oh my gosh, yeah, Hurston totally was creating hybrid roses in many of her characters because, and also Nella Larson, yeah, because of how she meticulously documented these ways of life that were fading away or that they were afraid were fading away and infused them into their fiction. But this is the new regionalism that these these people, these women, are sensing that this 19th century small town way of life and the landscape that it's attached to, and and all of these writers, I would argue, see those things as very interconnected, Um, but that small town way of life is fading out. And they, I believe consciously, though it may vary from writer to writer, take it as a project to document it before it's gone. And to document it as fiction writers, though of course, as I've mentioned, Hurston does it both as a scholar and as a fiction writer. But Cather, Jewett, Montgomery, um, and and this is also actually both a paper and a book that I have in progress, um, grouping Montgomery with these writers that were not Canadian, but that, in my opinion, share a project. And Alice Carey, also one of them. Um, I would argue in some ways though, earlier Louisa May Alcott doing some of this, that they're documenting this way of life that they see as fading with a total immersion into the homes, and home is important because of course it is often neglected by male writers, but both sometimes in their fiction, but even more so in the scholarship that home doesn't matter, what you do out in the world is what matters, right? And And for these women, home matters, It immerses you in the home. It immerses you in work, but in workplaces too, in many cases. It immerses you in the landscape, immerses you in local ways of speaking and telling stories and personality styles of of people we would now call ancestors, their ways of life that were different. Many of these writers grappled with immigration, um, forced and not, and how the ways of people who had been immigrants, forced or not, filtered down through the generations and the contact between the generations is something that's very frequently documented in these books. Um, Cather and Hurston in particular, I would argue, Um, but also Montgomery. I mean, Montgomery, huh, many of these writers have well, one of the things that I, I have argued conspicuously elsewhere is that they have, even though they have main characters, their ensemble casts are exquisitely important. And I think that's partly coming out of an oral storytelling tradition where, you know, you have a teller, but your, your teller has their audience present. And so they would create ensemble casts in oral stories because the people who were there are being woven into the tales being told, right? And that that is something I deal with in my dissertation, that that the the audience, the way we think of it with an oral story factors into the way that these women write because the local characters are getting woven in the way they would in an oral story. And I'm now wondering, okay, so the light bulb I just had is that for that reason, many of these writers are writing works that depict multiple generations, right? You don't just know who Valency is. You know who her mother is. you know who her grandmother is. You know who you know you yeah. know you know these things. Now, for Hurston, I mean, Hurston, in her time period, could know those things, but many of her characters would not have, I shouldn't say would not have. in my limited perspective from where I sit could not have conceived ancestry in quite the same way because many of them were ripped from their ancestors. Mm-hmm. But you still get multi-generational stories and and you, you still get how the young folk interact with the old folk, right? And I'm starting to wonder if that's something you see, my little light bulb is, I'm starting to wonder if that's something you see more in the women's literature then in men's literature of the same period where you might get more of a microcosm on, you know, here is this one main character and their circle right now. And if they're an adult, their circle right now, and again, I'm going back to Fitzgerald, you know, their circle right now is their immediate friends and their romantic interest. Right? But these are women who write multi-generational casts in many cases. That may not all. I'm I'm kind of like trying to apply this to all the different authors and seeing what limitations it has with different authors. But let's run with it for a minute. We know Montgomery does it, and probably not coincidentally because she lived with her grandparents a lot of her life. Um, but Cather conspicuously does it. Jewett sometimes. Chopin yes. And and I'm starting to think that may be also part of the project of the regionalist, is that these older generations that had ways that they see changing, they're showing respect to them. They're, they're, they're trying, e- even as sometimes they get ripped on, like Mrs. Frederick, mm-hmm. they're, they're showing respect by preserving them, they're showing respect by depicting them, by choosing not to ignore them, and by showing how crucial they are to the community and by using them as a measure of change.
0: Now I know you love Sarah Orne Jewett and I'm very new to her. So tell me what I should be reading.
1: So Jewett, what I warn people, when I taught her, I used to sometimes call her the Seinfeld of 19th century literature, because there is no plot, Mm -hmm. right? That's the thing to know before you go into Jewett that Montgomery is also a meticulous and fantastic, I think, plotter. Jewett isn't just isn't that into plot. She is more about the characters and the place and immersing you in the characters and the place and any and, and in some of the books there is no plot. And if there is a plot, it's fairly secondary. I think in my reading. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but but I believe that to be the case with Jewett. And I think that's part of what's led to her dismissal is that we have been taught that plot is the most important thing. And there it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Country of the Point Pointed Furs was the first one that I had read by her. And I just fell completely in love with it. So once you know that it has no plot, be prepared for that going in. Once you know that it has no plot, please know that going in because we are often trained to look for plotted litness and it may throw you off. And some people like plottedness a lot, and it may throw them off. If you're prepared for the, maybe I shouldn't say unplottedness, maybe I should say different plottedness, because that's what we're talking about here, right? But if you're prepared for the alternative plottedness of Sarah Orne Jewett, I read Country of the Point of First and just fell in love with everything that I was saying earlier, the storytelling style that mimics oral storytelling again what I wrote about my dissertation that the way they use Jewett in particular but also some of these other authors the way they use narration the way they let characters in the story come forward and tell their own stories um which is in itself a dismantling of hierarchy and I'm going to talk about that in my book Um, Mm -hmm. that 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 instead of focusing you know that, that this rich immersion in the landscape this the seeing of beauty in the minor characters. Um, and this, this, the way they paint, minor char- quote unquote, minor characters. I mean, again, they're not minor characters. It's an ensemble cast, but the way they paint these characters almost lovingly. Um, and, and that's also something we're not supposed to say, right? We're intellectuals. We're supposed to talk about how we think about things, not how books feel. Let's talk about how the books feel they feel comforting, they feel like being out in nature, partly because they place you out in nature, but also because that's part of their literary aesthetic. I I used to tell my students that one of the reasons I'm not a fan of Hemingway, even though I have a good amount of respect for Hemingway in some of the ways of style that he crafted that really no one else was doing, I'm just not as fond of them, but I respect that he crafted something that not a lot of people were doing. But I, I like to joke with my students a lot of times. Hemingway sounds like a typewriter. You can tell he was a journalist first because his books sound like right. He uh-huh. uses lots of monosyllables. He uses short sentences. He does not describe things in detail. A lot of his sentences are like subject verb subject verb subject verb subject verb boom 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 boom. boom. Uh-huh. And Sarah Orne Jewett long, leisurely sentences with tangents upon tangents. The stories themselves have tangents upon tangents, which drives some people crazy, right? Mm -hmm. If you go in expecting a strict linear plottedness, you're going to go nuts. But I love that the stories are often about wandering and the stories themselves wander in the way that they're told. They wander from person to person. They wander from place to place. And the sentences themselves wander. I, you know, I think I have a copy of Deephaven Haven handy. Let me see if we can pull something out at random and have it bear out what I'm saying. Nice. Let's see. Da-da-da-da. I'm seeing dialogue. Okay, I'm going to try something at random. Let's see if it works. And if not, we may try something else. One And literally it random, like I just opened to kind of the middle of the book and then I I skimmed for a page that looked like it wasn't all dialogue, okay. One of the chief pleasures in Deep Haven was our housekeeping. Going to market was apt to use up a whole morning, especially if we went to the fish houses. We depended somewhat upon supplies from Boston, but sometimes we used to chase a butcher who took a drive in his old canvas topped cart when he felt like it. And as for fish, there were always enough to be caught, even if we could not buy any. Okay, let's stop right there for a second, or maybe I'll go a little further and I'll go back. Sorry, continuing. Our acquaintances would often ask if we had anything for dinner that day, and would kindly suggest that somebody had been boiling lobsters, or that a boat had just come in with some nice mackerel, or that somebody over on the ridge was calculating to kill a lamb, and we had better speak for a quarter in good season. I'm afraid we were looked upon as being in danger of becoming epicures, which we certainly are not. And we undoubtedly aroused a great deal of interest because we used to eat mushrooms, which grew in the suburbs of the town in wild luxuriance. Okay, that paragraph, let's go back for a minute. One, two, I'm counting the periods. That's a four sentence paragraph, okay? In Hemingway, a four sentence paragraph Uh, four sentences would be like, you know, 1215 words. (laughs) In many cases. That's four sentences. One of the sentences I was trying to count as I was going and I couldn't do it It had like three insect clauses. (laughs) I mean, going down to the micro level of how she writes, but also the books themselves are like this. And and, it's, and I love that mm-hmm. I happened to accidentally choose one where they're talking about being out wandering, talking to people because that's the crux of all the books. So So at the larger narrative level, her books do that. They wander, they meander, they enact what the characters are doing, which is wandering and meandering and taking in the landscape. But she even does it down to the sentence level. The sentences wander, the sentences meander. They're full of you know, prepositional phrases upon prepositional phrases, which as a writer, I get told in writing group all the time, don't do that, don't do that, that's bad writing. And I wanna turn to the people in my writing group and go, yeah, you think that because you've been brainwashed, Mm -hmm. right? Which, I mean, that's a little holier than now and I've tried not to get too judgy (laughs) in writing group. But, but But I'm tempted to do that because to me, this writing is beautiful. This writing is gorgeous. I feel an intimacy with these characters almost immediately. and i don't I don't mind not knowing where it's going because I'm liking the journey. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I feel that same way in Montgomery, even though she is a little more conspicuously plotted. But that last, you know, word, last moment of the paragraph, which it was luxurious or languid or something like that. That's how I feel about Jewett is that it's this beautiful, lyrical, wandering prose that enacts what the characters are doing on a narrative level, but also on a syntactic level that the, the sentences flow like rivers. And that's not an accident. She wants them to be like rivers. She's talking about rivers. She's talking about oceans. And she's creating a literature that mimics that. The same way that I think Montgomery and perhaps others were crafting hybrid roses in their depiction of post 1920s women and pre 1920s women, I think their fictions are also fictions that do not shy away from the harsh realities of life, people dying, discrimination, you know, th- I mean, sorry Neil Hurston knows about discrimination. Come on. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, that that they don't shy away from these harsher aspects of reality just because they deal with them in a way that is more fundamentally comforting, mm-hmm. and, and it bothers me that that is part and parcel of the dismissal. That somehow if you're reading comforting literature, you must be reading escapist literature. right? And I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think it's the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. That was one of my, I haven't been as active on bookstagram for the same reason that I'm a, lately. I was very active on bookstagram for about a year and a half mm-hmm. and I have been less active in the last year because of just needing to limit my sensory input. Mm-hmm. But um, but one of the hashtags that I was pioneering just before my departure was, I, I think it was hashtag soothing books for stressful times. Because I do think we need soothing books. I think they are important. And I think their critical dismissal does an injustice to the whole world. Mm -hmm. Um, But that it is possible to craft a soothing book that isn't also escapist.
0: Finally, I know Willa Cather is one of your favorite regionalists alongside Orne Jewett. And I wondered if you might put her also in conversation with montgomery do a little you know compare and contrast
1: cather is like montgomery in that that rich love of landscape local characters uh, quaint small towns and that that goal to preserve a way of life that might be dying okay but also now i'm i'm getting all excited about maybe also this new goal to create a hybrid to create a hybrid T rose, right? That, Mm -hmm. That embraces the female companionship and value of nature and value of community that we see in the past, but also brings it to bear on a new world where women have more opportunities, where there is more equality between cultures, and And some of those authors would advocate that, and others wouldn't. And we can go one by one if you want. Um, mm-hmm. but 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 I, but I do think some of their literature facilitates it, whether they themselves valued it or not, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know that that moving into this new world without losing some of these these I, I'm struggling with what to call them. Can I say green values, green world values? Sure, hey, try, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's run with that for a minute. But also values of female community. I, You know, the, have you read the play Trifles? I haven't. OK, first of all, do. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, I'm going to use another analogy now. I'm going to call them quilting values. Okay. values. Of quilts because quilts, of course, are huge in the female communities of the 19th century because they're and that's something that is cross-cultural. You see quilts all over the Black community mm-hmm. um, because they're a money saver, right? And they're mm-hmm. and they're a handicraft that many cultures have, and um, and they are that that quilts are such a wonderful metaphor for so many things. But they are also a woman's art and a woman's work that is both creative and functional. And I just gotta say, I'm a fan of Rank, Rankin, she's an actual quilter, (laughs) I think she's passed now. But uh, yeah, that, that quilts are such a marvelous metaphor for those female values that are both traditional and contemporary. Right. Well, let's call it those quilting values, that you have the female community, the female tradition, the female work, and the female home space that we recognize from the 19th century brought into the 20th century. And so I think in in Jewett, you see those same quilting values, even though you, you don't see as much actual quilting. Her women tend to be more writers, and she has, a, well, if you've read Point of First, I'd... Mrs. Todd is like one of my favorite characters in all of literature, you know, she's a, a potioner, what do we want to call her? <laughs> but, um, but so in Jewett you have those same green world quilting values um, as Montgomery, but with less plottedness, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and I love Deep Haven, Country Point for his White Heron in particular. Cather, I love everything I've ever read by Cather. You don't see the green world values in all of it. In Cather, you see those green world values, I think mostly in two sectors of her literature, the Nebraska novels and the Southwest novels. Of the Southwest novels, Death Comes for the Archbishop is kind of considered the best, but I like the Nebraska novels the best. So for me, the quintessential Cather is Song of the Lark, not in this order, Song of the Lark, O Pioneers, and My Antonia. I think O Pioneers and My Antonia are two of the best books I have ever read, period. Um, But with Cather, what I would warn people to expect if they're coming to her from Montgomery is a harsher landscape and a harsher reality to go with it. And the example that I would use of this is that when someone dies in an Ella Montgomery novel, It's often of natural causes and in many cases, it's foreshadowed, like you kind of know it's coming, you're ready for it, not always, but often. In Cather, be prepared before you read, especially if you're HSP like me, for death to be more harsh, more abrupt, more violent and less natural. Mm I I think it is only fair, again, as an HSP, I like to warn other HSPs to be ready for that when you go into cather. So those are kind of the two of my most adored regionalists. Though, as I've said before, I also dearly love Zora Neale Hurston. Now, she's doing something a little different in some ways, but she's also doing something, I think, highly analogous. With Zora Neale Hurston, though, you have to, I think people need to be ready for a, even harsher reality than Catholic. You know, there's going to be violence. There's going to be, you know, cruelty. There's going to be a rougher world. But there is still that comfort. There is still that gorgeousness of prose. There is still that quilting sensibility. And 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 oh, just the beauty of her writing. To me, I, I'm someone even as an HSP that if the writing is beautiful, that in itself is a comfort that gets me through the roughness. And to me, Zora Neale Hurston is like the quintessence of that. Um, Something that I also see then later in Toni Morrison, that the writing is so beautiful that you feel like you have a friend even when the reality gets harsh.
0: And we are back. And since it's just me and this hot little podcasting studio, I'm going to go ahead and say adios. Before I go, though, a couple of things. One huge thank you to all of our guests, our guest co-hosts and our read along participants and just everyone listening right now to the Blue Castle miniseries. This was a blast. You all are amazing. You're beautiful. And I hope you're having a wonderful day. And um, yeah, if you want to find Trina on the internets, you should do that. Her website is TrinaForever.com. She's also on Instagram at Trina underscore rights. And I'm going to spell her name for you real quick. It's T-R-I-N-N-A, last name F-R-E-V-E-R. She's easy to find because that's a unique name, Trina. You can also go to yourlmmstory.com and submit your Ellen Montgomery story. Now, remember that's the project she's working on with Dr. Kate Scarth, and it sounds amazing. And you guys should all do that. You can find more about Bonnets at Dawn on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You just have to find us like by searching Bonnets at Dawn. It's pretty easy. We keep it pretty consistent across all platforms, don't we, Hannah? She's not here to answer. So sad. You can also buy the book that Hannah and I wrote called Why She Wrote. That is available now via Chronicle. And you can purchase that on Amazon, bookshop.org, or just, you know, go into your local retailer and ask them to order it for you. That would be awesome. Now, we will be back in a few short weeks to talk about the art of adaptation, really excited for this miniseries. It's gonna, it's gonna slap guys. Can I say that? Am I too old to say that? I don't know. It's hot in here. I should go. Bye.